Welcome everyone to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I am Marcus Johnson, Director of State Health Policy and Advocacy at Vitalist Health Foundation. As a reminder, we are currently revisiting some past episodes of the Spark podcast that are still relevant in today's world while we work to bring you new content in the weeks ahead. This week, we point to new evidence from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that drug overdose deaths in the U.S. surged by nearly 30% in 2020. It is estimated that more than 93,000 people died of drug overdoses last year, a record high representing the sharpest annual increase in at least three decades. Rightfully so, we have seen enormous amounts of attention and energy poured into the COVID-19 pandemic over the past year. However, we must remember that there is still much work to be done to address and prevent the damage that is being done by opioid abuse in our communities. Today, we take you back to an episode from May of this year featuring Dr. Dan Kwan and Lee Piaski, two frontline warriors fighting the drug overdose epidemic. Dr. Kwan is a board-certified emergency physician and medical toxicologist at District Medical Group, practicing at Valleywise Health. He is also a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. Lee Piaski served as executive director of Crossroads, one of the largest substance abuse treatment organizations in the state since 2005. Lee is responsible for growing Crossroads from two campuses, serving 70 individuals in Phoenix, to seven licensed substance abuse treatment campuses, serving over 400 men and women across Maricopa County. Let's listen. This monster, it's overwhelming. We can't possibly treat everybody that needs treatment. And as Dr. Kwan said, this thing is spiking. It's not at its apex yet. It's going farther. And if it could get a tenth of the press that COVID got, it would be helpful. But really, nobody wants to talk about it. And it's going to get worse and worse. Isolationism that happened during the pandemic was very, very difficult, especially early on. Certainly, you could see it in our kids. Kids were having a a very difficult time dealing with just being home alone and not seeing their friends. If you translate that into our other populations, our adult populations, especially addicts and psychiatric issues, it's been very challenging to get through this time of isolation. Addiction, especially fentanyl addiction, is truly a weapon of mass destruction in my mind. This thing, at the end of the day, maybe not in one year, but at the end of five years, is going to kill more people than COVID did. I would really like to see some of these great minds that I see on TV talking about COVID address this issue too. And maybe they will. I hope they will. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And as we have throughout the pandemic, it's time to check in on a community health issue that predated COVID and has only become more pressing since. As you hear more about from our guests, 2019 was supposed to have been a peak level of opioid addiction and misuse, but things look much different now. There is a pernicious shift from dirty heroin to clean prescription drugs, but that clean perception is deceptive, given the power and peril that an opioid like fentanyl delivers. In basic grade school economic terms, we are witnessing more supply and more demand than ever before. Opioids are a nearly ubiquitous threat to Arizonans, and this crisis is very much worthy of deeper discussion. You're about to hear from two long-term warriors in the fight against addiction and overdose, one from an innovative and life-saving recovery center, and one from the center of Arizona's acute care and addiction medicine leadership. So let's get to it. Together, we're about to get updated on the opioid and opiate landscape. 
its frustrations and surprises, treatment options, and even a couple of drop-the-mic moments regarding the opioid crisis as of May 3rd, 2021. Today, we are visiting the world of opioids with two fantastic and very knowledgeable people. First off, the executive director of Crossroads, Mr. Lee Piosky. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, John. Thank you for inviting me. I'm certainly looking forward to having a good discussion with you and Dr. Kwan on what I think is a real pressing issue of our time. You are considered to be a treasure of the recovery community. And from the acute care community, we have another treasure. Dr. Dan Kwan, DO, Director of Medical Toxicology and Emergency Physician at Valleywise Health. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, John. And excited to have a great discussion with Lee. This is something I've been looking forward to all week. Glad we can make it happen. I would like both of you to talk about where were you this time of February last year before we even knew that COVID was going to be a problem? Where was the opioid crisis at that moment? And then where did it go? When it went wherever it went, how did you respond? And I'm going to start first with Dan. Let's say a year ago, Governor Ducey had a task force to revamp the way we, we do things in Arizona. So there's a reporting line. There was also a way to track the number of opioid deaths. I use opioid because in my mind, opiates are, are more derived from poppies as a, opposed to synthetics and semi-synthetics. So I use opioids. But during that time, uh, you know, you put in place a lot of things to track basically narcotic prescription writing. And we are seeing a downtrend in opiate prescription writing as well as diversion and and that sort of thing. But I think at that point, we were starting to see a switch from trying to drug seek through emergency departments, primary care, and pain management to street fentanyl. And so that's where we are today is from the switch from prescription pain medicines to basically most people using street fentanyl pills. Lee, how about you? When you think about it from the crossroads perspective, where were you last February? How did it feel? What happened? And how do you feel now? Well, I think Dr. Kwan is exactly right. I happen to be on the governor's task force, so I'm, I'm familiar with uh, those things that we had recommended to the governor, especially about prescription writing and such. So I almost go back like to 2018, where we hit an apex from opioid treatment as far as number of people coming into treatment. It it had topped out and it had started to drop a little bit. Again, when I talk about opiates, I'm talking about the full spectrum from the poppy derivative to the synthetics. A year ago, we had started to see some significant uptick in fentanyl synthetics and a progressive continued downturn in heroin and the prescription narcotics. So some things were working, obviously, and some things were getting larger. As we fast forward now, we still see a dramatic uptick in fentanyl, probably a a leveling off in the other opiates that are derived from the poppy. And problematic with that is fentanyl is a far more powerful opiate, far more dangerous Unfortunately, the most dangerous one is the one that seems to be spiking up during the last year. And that's kind of what we see here at Crossroads. You both approach the answer to that question from the perspective of the substances. What about from the perspective of the people that you are seeing? What we've seen in the behavioral health treatment business is a trend that's actually been ongoing now for several years. And that is 
a progressively younger population coming in. When I started in the business 20 years ago, the average age in our treatment centers was somewhere in the mid to upper 40s. Today, it's somewhere in the mid 20s. So we have seen a trend developing here of continually younger and younger. Fortunately, I see the same sort of thing. You know, we, we have patients all the way down to middle school kids that are buying these pills at school, all the way up to what we call more financially astute patient that have gotten hooked on, on these opiate pain medications and then switched to fentanyl. We have to realize that those fentanyl pills are everywhere. They're very easy to get. They're probably some of the easier forms of pain medication these days that you can get on the street. So if somebody runs out, to just go down the street to their local vendor, I'll call them, and they'll pick up some pills. And I think the huge availability anywhere from middle school all the way up through the spectrum of patients is just uh, telling of our times. So now we're down to the classic discussion. Is it supplier demand that's driving the change? <laughs> There's plenty of supply and the demand is high. So, you know, and I think that's why heroin has is, is pretty much gone away because the fentanyl pills, in everyone's mind, fentanyl is clean versus heroin is dirty. So if you can say, oh, I just take a couple of fentanyl pills or I smoke fentanyl or whatever, whatever route that you decide to abuse fentanyl, that's clean versus the dirty brown black tar heroin that you would get on the street. And I think that probably has a lot to do with it, too. That's true. It's an interesting subculture in the people that we see because there's almost a, some of the longtime pure heroin users look down on the fentanyl users, and some of the fentanyl users look down on the heroin users. And it's a bizarre, it's not rational discussion, but this is the kind of thing that we're seeing. We'll ask a heroin user, are you using fentanyl? And they like recoil and say, oh my God, no, I'd never, until you test them, of course, and they find out that they've been taking it. Maybe they don't even know it, but they've got it in their system too. So the fentanyl is really what we're seeing. And Dr. Kwan is right. Heroin is receding. Fentanyl is everything. It's everywhere. It's cheap. Anybody can get it. High school students, middle school students, housewives, it doesn't matter. It's easy to get. If I wanted a fentanyl pill, I could probably find one within 15 minutes from where I'm sitting. So Lee, Dan said it. He said supply is high, but so is demand. From your perspective and what you're seeing, particularly during the recovery process, what is it that is causing this in terms of people's lives? Is it as some people have theorized, related to COVID social isolation impact, related to economic impacts from COVID, is it about any of that? I think that's certainly a causation factor. But back in the days when I was drinking, I always wanted Johnny Walker Black. I wanted the, the best. I would talk about it with my drinking buddies. You, you didn't talk about going down to the Kmart and getting Mogan David. You talked about the best stuff. And, and in the addictive world, fentanyl, is the Johnny Walker Black. It's the best you can get. It's the most powerful. And Dr. Kwan said it too. It's, it's not as dirty as black tar heroin. It's just not as messy, easy to get. It's like being able to buy the most expensive booze at cheaper than the Mogan David price. It's maybe a bad analogy, but that's what's going on out there. It's considered the best stuff. It's cheap and easy to get. So of course, 
the demand is great and there is no shortage of supply. It's coming from everywhere. Dr. Kwan, when we were, say, two, three months into the pandemic, did you think to yourself, man, we're definitely going to see a spike in cases of opioid use? It's like pulling a cart up a hill. At that time, we're still going upwards in terms of the the amount of fentanyl cases we're seeing. I actually didn't think it was going to go up dramatically like it has been reported. I knew that we would have an increase and we were on that road to going up that hill. But somehow that hill has really changed an angle and we're really going uphill now. And I don't really see us getting to the other side yet. I think it's still climbing. We're still going up that huge hill right now. Understanding that we're going up this huge hill, that sort of raises the first question of, are there enough resources for Arizona to respond and to help people? Are we capable as a state right now? Are we resourced correctly to meet this uphill climb? Luckily, we have Lee and his uh, his place around, but I think if Lee opened up five of them that size, we may be able to, to make a dent. I don't know. I personally think that we haven't maximized our resources and we haven't really put in place a lot of the things that are necessary to address this issue yet. So how does that play out when the two of you are sitting around the table at the governor's council? Lee? Right now, I imagine it's kind of like being in the Alamo. There's so few of us, and the force that's trying to break down the walls is overwhelming. I've come to understand, I don't believe we're going to treat our way out of this. I don't foresee it's possible. I mean, we're already spending a tremendous amount of dollars on this. At the end of the day, I think we're going to have to really do some investing in information and prevention. It's a lot cheaper than treatment. It's probably more effective in reducing the problem. As I mentioned before, the problem seems to be spiking hard, even amongst younger people. I think we've got to get in the grade schools and and, and get with the kids. I'm certain in my mind that this is probably the best way we can attack this thing, this monster. It's overwhelming. We can't possibly treat everybody that needs treatment. And as Dr. Kwan said, this thing is spiking. It's not at its apex yet. It's going farther. And if we could get a tenth of the press that COVID got, it would be helpful. But really, nobody wants to talk about it. And it's going to get worse and worse. Dr. Kwan, there it was. Lee's trying to turn the corner, looking for (laughs) ways to get through this by stopping the influx of people who are using opioids and opiates. From your perspective, knowing what you do know and seeing what you do see, where do we start? Education is probably the biggest thing that we can do. And, and it's not only just education from the, the patient or the client side. It, it's really an, an education from the health professional side as well. I think there's a lot of fear in prescribers writing for adequate amounts of pain medicine that I see. You know, a lot of times uh, patients that really do have chronic pain or even they're kind of in that rehab phase, they get their medications abruptly cut off and they have nowhere else to go. They have no resource to find relief. So they go to the streets. And I think also from the healthcare standpoint, what we need to do is to figure out which conditions need narcotic pain medication and which things don't. I was never a huge narcotic pain prescriber, and now I'm even less so, but there are definitely alternatives and and alternative ways to treat pain in general. So I think if we at least start from that point, we can move forward. And then, as Lise had mentioned, 
education to young people is, is huge. Just as a, another thing to think about is the mental health aspect. Arizona is very bad at uh, addressing mental health issues. And I think the opioids maybe use alcohol, opioids, any of those types of things are used to treat whatever psychiatric condition one might have. Lee, some of public perception is driven by really high-profile stuff, like drug manufacturers who are paying fines because they put so many opioids into distribution. One pharmacy in one town is sending out enough opioids to cover every single citizen of that town four times over. That's some of the public perception about supply. Does that really jive with what's happening in Arizona? Well, you know, society is interesting when it comes to problems. And, and of course, when lawyers get involved, they're going to follow the money. And they can't get the cartels in court, can they? They're going to go after the manufacturers. I'm certain the manufacturers, they've got some things to answer to, but you can squeeze every dime out of the opioid pain medication manufacturers. And I don't believe you're really going to do much to address the problem. The supply is great. It comes from several different sources. It certainly is flooding across the border. It's easy to make. When there's demand, there's always going to be supply. It will come from somewhere. We really, I think, have to start focusing on the demand side a little bit more than we are. It makes great news when you get the pharmaceuticals in court, win a big settlement, much like it was against the tobacco people years ago. And maybe in the end, that has some effect. I hope so. But we really have to start thinking about why are our 10-year-old children trying to seek out fentanyl in school? And why is that? How is that? And I don't think the pharmaceutical companies have a lot to do with that. Dr. Kwan, why is that? It's a really difficult question. Why would 10-year-olds be seeking out opioids? I think it goes back to that concept of supply and demand. Drug dealers wouldn't be bringing them to school if somebody wasn't buying them. And also, if there's no one around, you know, like uh, teachers and administrators kind of looking out for some of the signs of addiction or some of those smoking in the boys' room sort of things, a bunch of kids going into various places. I mean, I think we, we just we have to have our uh, school administrators and teachers really be on the lookout for these sorts of things. So, and I think that's how, how all this starts in school is maybe younger kids have older siblings that, that have this stuff at home. And I think we, again, think these are pills so why not just take a couple of pills to school and see if you can sell them or, or use them, or maybe your friends would like to try them? Is that just a generational blind spot, really? If you, the parent, never had to encounter something like this, does it create a generational blind spot where you can't even see what your children might be doing? Well, I think these days, I mean, my kids aren't teenagers yet, but I'm looking forward to those days. <laughs> I, I, I look back at when I was a teenager and the things that I tried to hide from my parents. And, you know, kids are, are very uh, astute these days and, and smart and creative and hats off to them, but they'll try to get away with anything. And I think that's kind of the issue that we have is we have social media, we have phones that we carry, we have all this technology that helps move things along in a breakneck speed, so to speak. I just think that's probably what's happening. On the other hand, Dr. Kwan, the way in could also be the way out. What about 
medication-assisted treatment or medication for opioid use disorder? Why is that not a more prevalent method of helping people recover than it is? I think MAT is useful for some patients. I'm one of those addiction guys that rather use nothing and then use psychotherapy and this, those sorts of things. But I know that there are some chemical imbalances in some patients out there that they do require some medication-assisted treatment. Having said that, I think that that may not be for everyone. And so maybe, Lee, you can shed some light on this, but I don't know if MAT should be for every patient out there. I think for a subset of patients, yes, it it will help. And for those that are trying to get through the recovery and also the withdrawal process, that would be the way to go about it. But I don't know if patients necessarily need to be on a lifelong this wouldn't be a discussion about drugs if there weren't acronyms. So we have MAT for medicated assisted treatment. We have MOOD for medication for opioid use disorder. Tell us what your experience is with them and what you think they can give us in terms of a way out. Dr. Kwan is exactly, I'm right where he is. I sat down with a pharmaceutical representative 10 or 12 years ago who assured me that medication assisted treatment was being developed by the pharmaceutical companies as a short-term bridge between addiction and then abstinence. It has absolutely become something else, in many cases, a lifelong course. There's a lot of thinking in the community that if you put somebody on medication-assisted treatment for a lifetime, they're better off than going back to addiction. I suppose if you say it like that, that that's probably true, but My experience is that people on a lifetime course of medication-assisted treatment do not function at their highest decibel. I'm saying 70, 80%. It just isn't the same. So like Dr. Kwan, if it is all possible, we like to get them off of the substances out of medication-assisted treatment. I will say it is extremely useful in some cases that there just doesn't seem to be any other way to do it other than prescribe medication. But we certainly like to see the patient attempt through psychotherapy, behavioral management, to try and get them clean and sober without the MATs. But I have to tell you, in the community, it's like all MAT right now. It's something you can stick it in their arm or put it under their tongue, or it's something you can do that has an effect and It doesn't take a lot of the work of all that psychotherapy and all that messy stuff that you have to go through. You just give them a shot and send them out the door. So I can see why it's attractive, but to me, it's not a great solution. All right. A couple more things. One is sort of required on this podcast these days, and the other one's going to push your creativity a little bit. So that first thing is this. We're still going through a pandemic. When it comes to opioids, What came through that prism of the pandemic that we learned that we can take forward? And what did we see maybe more plainly than ever before that absolutely needs to be addressed? And I will start with Dr. Kwan. I feel like I'm going first a lot. What's going on? (laughs) Oh, well. All right. We'll start with Lee. Okay. And this is anecdotal. I think it correlates well, but I've always believed and still do believe that isolation is not good for people with addictive disorders. I'm not sure it's good for anybody, frankly, to be honest with you, but it's, I think it's especially difficult for people that are in recovery. A lot of people I know with fairly long-term sobriety have relapsed during this time, probably more so than I've seen in any one given year. Addiction does not do well 
I'm, I'm a recovering addict, 27 years clean and sober. And I wanted nothing more than to be alone when I was in my addiction, alone with my drugs. And recovery for me was being around other people and interacting and talking about what was going on and hearing from others what was going on with them made a big difference in my life and my recovery. During the pandemic, everybody was isolated to an extent. I don't think it was good. We see a a resulting increase in many issues, including addiction. And I do believe there's correlation with the isolation from the pandemic. The quicker that we can get back to interaction, I know at Crossroads, we're starting to do our social meetings again and doing a lot of more things in person. And I think we're seeing immediate results from being able to do that. Isolation bad, being together good. That's kind of how I look at it, John. Dr. Kwan, when you think about what has been effective in terms of therapies, obviously Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs are very much about togetherness. The work of Crossroads is very much about togetherness. Is that the thing we learned from COVID or is there more? No, I I think that's spot on. The isolationism that that happened during the pandemic was very, very difficult, especially early on. We sort of found ways to adapt and deal with those sorts of things, but certainly you could see it in our kids. Kids were having a, a very difficult time dealing with just being home alone and not seeing their friends. If you translate that into our other populations, our adult populations, especially addicts and psychiatric issues, it's been very challenging to get through this time of isolation. So I think now we might be able to get out more and interact some more and sort of get back to what we used to have. But we'll see. I think time will tell. We're, we're definitely not out of the woods yet in terms of addiction or psychiatric issues with the pandemic. We just emerged from the past weekend of the Kentucky Derby where a long shot won the race. You got a long shot for us for meeting this apex and getting back down to a more acceptable level? That's a good question. I mean, we still have a ways to go because we haven't been fully vaccinated in our society at this point, at least in the U.S. Time will tell if the variants are going to be impactful to how the vaccine also covers those. I think there's still a lot of different variables out there that we don't know and we will encounter day by day. I'm hopeful that by next year, we could kind of get back to what we used to do on a regular basis. That's my hope anyway. Lee, same for you. What's your long shot? It makes me kind of crazy. Driving to work this morning, I was listening to a discussion on the radio and they think that there's somewhere between 25 and 30% of the adult population in the United States that doesn't want to get vaccinated. And I I just started banging my head on the steering wheel. Trust me, I know nothing about medical stuff, but I believe in my heart that, as Dr. Kwan was just saying, that vaccination really is the way out of this, at least the best way out that we can find. And and certainly there's going to be variants and, and other things that are coming into play that we don't quite understand yet. But I know here in our organization with 250 employees, our employees are all vaccinated. Therefore, we're getting back into the workplace and we're starting to approach something that looks a little bit more like normal. And I feel like the same thing probably could be true with with our population in general if we just line up and get the shot as our best hope. I mean, masks and social distancing, yes, that stuff's effective, but we need to get back to something that looks like a normal type of existence for us and the sooner the better. 
All right, here it comes. Creativity time. We call this segment today your drop the mic moment. Each of you gets about 90 seconds in front of what you believe to be the most important audience of stakeholders that can make changes happen within the next three years as it pertains to opioids. Part A of the question, who's in that audience? Who are those key stakeholders? Part B, what will you tell them before you drop the mic and leave the stage? Lee, you're up first. Okay. Addiction, especially fentanyl addiction, is truly a weapon of mass destruction in my mind, just from what I see. And we have to come to grips with it. And here's what I mean. I mean, I've, I've watched very jealously for the last year and a half as we see the coverage on COVID-19 daily on the news every day, talked about by everybody. Everybody's involved. The best doctors in the country are on TV talking about it. And the president is talking about it daily. And I want that kind of moment for addiction too. I want that kind of realization from the public. When I talk about stakeholders, I'm talking about even our elected politicians and congressmen and senators and people that can make a difference to understand that this thing at the end of the day, maybe not in one year, but at the end of five years is going to kill more people than COVID did. And it is that kind of issue. And, and the destruction on families and our society is substantial. It drains a tremendous amount of medical resources and human resources from society. It is a very bad problem. It is getting worse I would really like to see some of these great minds that I see on TV talking about COVID address this issue too. And maybe they will. I hope they will, because we're seeing numbers now higher than we've ever seen before in, in several areas. I really hope that even by doing this podcast, if we can just get some realization out there, take some of the press of COVID away and focus it on this, to me, that would be a good thing. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Dr. Kwan, how about you? What's your drop the mic moment? I kind of pictured mine as talking about addiction and not only the opioid crisis, but the methamphetamine problem, as well as the benzodiazepine problem. I think we have so many different issues in terms of addiction medicine that my moment would be to have a, a joint session of Congress and be able to say all these things. And then in my best breakdance move is to spin around on the floor of the Congress chambers. And uh, that would be about it. <laughs> I like it. You know, I, one of the threads between the comments for both of you was this notion of there's just far too much acceptance of the way things are right now. Absolutely. So how do we drive the point home that this is not acceptable? You know, it's interesting to me because you know, darn near every family has somebody in it these days that's having some kind of an addiction issue. So it's a problem that everybody knows about, but not a lot of people talk about. I don't think there's as much stigma about it as there was 20 years ago, but there's still plenty of stigma left talking about this subject. Uh, great point. I think there's some taboo in terms of families, and we don't want that in our family. So maybe that's that's part of psychology of, of admitting to you're an addict or having a family member that you want to hide because they have, have this sort of thing. I think if we have the ability to make it less stigmatized, that it would be better. Maybe people would seek out help as opposed to just trying to, to do it on their own and, and not find people like Lee to help them out. 
Thank you, Dr. Kwan, and thank you, Lee. It's clear from your comments that COVID has both exacerbated the opioid crisis and obscured it. Pandemics, it turns out, have a way of getting our attention. Like other aspects of community that came under pressure, opioid misuse has only grown significantly since COVID began, and apparently, stigma shows no signs of abating either. This episode is our reminder. Judgment and stigma have no positive role to play. Instead, we need connection, understanding, and the most comprehensive response possible. As Lee noted, we need the same scientific and strategic power that responded to COVID if we are to stem the tide of death, family destruction, and societal costs that opioid misuse leaves in its wake. As Dr. Kwan noted, the opioid crisis presents a steeper uphill climb than ever before. The time is now for thoughtful, informed, data-driven, and comprehensive response. The Vital Spark will be back again next week. In the meantime, our recent episodes on the affordable housing crisis, fragile food systems, Arizona tribes, schools, streets and transportation, and much more await your ears. There is a lot to listen to that points to ways that we can respond to COVID's impact in Arizona. Like this week, those episodes feature guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon. Vitalist Health Foundation is on a mission to connect, support, and inform efforts to improve the health of individuals and communities in Arizona. Thank you, Dan and Lee. There are many resources available, and we hope that the information in this podcast will be useful to the individuals and families facing the struggle of opioid misuse and abuse. Fortunately, there is good news on the drug abuse front in Arizona. During the last legislative session, Arizona passed two laws that can help reduce and prevent overdose. The first legalizes fentanyl testing strips that can help people who use drugs to avoid fentanyl-laced substances, and the second legalizes syringe service programs, which has been proven to reduce the use of dirty needles, decrease infectious disease, and welcome people into addiction recovery services. We'll see you soon with a new episode of our COVID roundtable. There is much to discuss. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy.